This week on the Eldritch Lorecast, the representatives of the community right now are a queer black woman and a queer queer non-binary person. You can be here and you can be playing. This game is for you, which is fantastic. That does make some people angry, but what's he going to (laughs) do? James, how hyped are you that this Kickstarter is still going? Oh, Ben, I'm so hyped. Buddy, does Adventurers League still exist? No, wait, it would be that way. Yeah, that way. One of the ways that very frequently is like, I ran this adventure once. And Sean's like, I wrote that. Yeah. Um, I watch just wants to have its, its little movie. Players of my table were getting quite frustrated with me for reading the entire box text. This is on company time. Let's keep it running. <laughs> if you save one goblin in your entire D&D career, let it be droop. My dog ate my monster manual the other week. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, the number one tabletop RPG and D&D podcast in all the realms, every sphere, every cosmos we have reached into. They are listening to the Eldritch Lorecast in the astral plane, in the ethereal expanse, in Grim Hollow. Somehow they've managed to, it's probably the whisperings in the back of their ears from the aberrant creatures that invade the realm, something like that. Anyway, my name is Ben Byrne. Uh, and I am joined, as always, by James Hake. And this week, special guests joining us, Latia Jaquis and Sarah Chafee. Welcome, both of you, to the Eldritch Lawcast. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. What is a memorable moment from a recent or maybe not so recent tabletop RPG game that you've played? Uh, something that really sticks in your mind. Oh, I've I've got one. I'll give them some time to think about it. No, no, no. I've got mine. <laughs> Go yeah, ahead, I was like, I don't even have to think. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, we're ready. We're all going to uh, get I'll... a good grade in remembering. Oh, how I long for that to be true every day. Um, okay, so <laughs> last weekend, just a day or two ago, I was playing D&D with my cousins. And this is the first time this has happened to me in years, probably. I went down to death saves because a creature... Uh, we were like invading a battleship, basically, and we'd gone down to the boiler room, and we the party had kind of split in half. We were taking the two sides of the of the boiler room at once, and there were these like creatures. Uh, they were like guards that, as we appeared, sort of their their like bones started to crack, and they kind of morphed into these six armed eldritch monstrosities, and they you know sort of leapt and scuttled across the walls to get to us. And we were split off from each other by these big bulkheads, basically. Every turn, two party members went from basically full HP to death saves. Uh, <laughs> as these creatures just like kind of became Cuisinarts, they had like these six bladed <laughs> arms that just through one character every single round. And I go like I go down. My rogue is like not hidden. I just go. I get downed, and I think my first two death saves were both like fours. And so I'm here, my heart is pounding out of my chest because I have not gone to uh, zero and two in death save for, I think, like three years. Uh, And I was freaking terrified. (laughs) Fair enough. Did you Uh, live? Barely, somehow. I think a a clutch healing word got me out and we lived with like two party members up at the end of that fight. That's That was thrilling. Like I needed, it was absolutely mandatory for me to know whether or not you lived. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was really worried. I was really worried for a TPK there. This was about this was about five years ago, actually. And it's so it's always fresh in my mind because it was one of the first games that I played coming back into D&D after a really long hiatus. But I was playing a monk and I never played a monk before. And it was some one shot module where I was at the top of a bunch of like some cliffs and some waterfalls and whatnot. And I'm probably level four or five at this point. And, you know, it's 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 a thing I can jump over. I'm a monk. That's going to be fine, right? Yeah, no, I rolled a natural <laughs> one. Oh. Uh, rolled a natural one, fell into a river that immediately led into a waterfall. So I got the <laughs> advantage of the slow fall there coming. Like, it was probably like 300 feet worth of waterfall. S- fell down that. And then I think I fumbled the next roll to not fall down another waterfall or something like that. But at the at the very bottom of all of this, so we were we were being attacked as well. So at the very end of all of this, I crawl out of the water 
and there are zip lines and the enemies are coming down towards us at these zip lines. So I get to the bottom and this enemy is coming down a zip line. I'm like drenched. I'm really tired. I'm like half hit points. I just get out. I grab my spear and I just wait at the end of the zip line <laughs> for, this creature to, for this enemy to come at me. And I'm like, it was worth it just for this. <laughs> being able to be down there imagine the look on their faces they're coming down they're like yeah i'm gonna get you i'm gonna oh wait wait no 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 no, no. <laughs> exactly. Abort, abort. exactly not exactly how i wanted to get down there but you know six of one half dozen of another i failed to, task failed successfully uh this is very silly which i've had a lot of great dramatic moments recently but i feel like this is the most recent very very silly thing that has happened to me i think maybe in the last two months or so uh i play a bard in a game and we've we've played this game for a pretty long time so we're pretty m- mid high level at this point uh level 11 i think we are through misadventures etc we find ourselves in a place where there's a lot of enchantment magic around specifically a mist that makes you forget up to everything about yourself Um, It doesn't make you lose any abilities, but you just forget who you are. You forget where you are. Anyone that you might know, you forget them. And my sweet, sweet bard is not very wise. And it was a wisdom save. So while we are all traveling also as mist, thanks to our druid, my bard slips down into the mist and promptly fails the save so badly that he forgets everything. Oh, Uh, Here's here's the the clincher there, though, is that my bard is from the College of Eloquence. And uh, if you don't know this. Certain bards can't roll below certain numbers, just like rogues with expertise. So my bard cannot roll below a 23 on any kind of charisma check to do with speech. (laughs) So he comes out of this mist, not knowing who he is, uh, gets lost. The party catches back up with him and they're like, dude, where have you been? He has no idea who these people are. He doesn't know if they're a threat to them. And so he's just like, away. I know who you are. Totally. Deceives everyone and travels with the party for three days without anyone catching that he'd fully forgotten his memory. It was so beautiful. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it was great. I had a great time. It's really fun to play a character who is just actively deceiving the party for a completely innocuous reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we we know who you are. It's a, okay. You know who we are. Me okay. too. Totally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love any like, and that's not even a a huge. I mean, it's clearly a negative effect for the character, but it's not like a, a, a an effect that's going to bring them close to death or anything. No. But I do love <laughs> effects that are negative in theory, but give the player license to role play in a really mm-hmm. quirky or there or was so much role play potential. Way. Yeah. 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 Um, I had a, a game recently and I want to give a shout out. I can't remember the author, so I apologize to them, but their adventure is called Hypothermia. Uh, it's on the DMs Guild. It's a great little sort of, it can be probably played in a one shot, but it took my group like four or five sessions to get through it. But spoilers, for if you're a player who might play in it, um, it focuses around a Burahag or a Vurahag, I believe I was told it was pronounced. Uh, but they have an Aboleth frozen in ice, kind of captured, which you only discover at the end of the adventure. And the hag had been defeated, so there was only the Aboleth left. And the party are level six, probably not quite Aboleth level uh, uh, capable of taking it on, especially after having just fought a hag. So the whole session was the Aboleth frozen, not able to do anything except for mind control different members of the party to try to free it. <laughs> So I didn't have to do anything that whole session. I never had to roll for initiative or do anything because the party just took care of the whole session themselves. It was great. It was a dream. That's Um, so fun. Aboleths are really fun creatures to run too. It's fun finding an aberration and just describing it in the strangest way possible, you know, and just being like, it's kind of like an eel, but it's got like its body like splits apart and it's kind of got tentacles and its eyes are missing because the hag's a horrible person. Um... But anyway, uh, speaking of good descriptions, uh, I'm known for my segues here. Uh, Latia and Sarah, I just want to say thank you for joining us again. For folks who might not uh, have seen you before on the D&D Beyond streams, do you want to give us a, a quick introduction to what folks can find over on the, the D&D Beyond Twitch channel? 
everything. Latia, take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I knew this was going to happen. So we talk about a whole, a a myriad, a bevy, a cadre of various subjects over on the D&D Beyond stream. But really what it is, it's just me, Sarah, and Amy Dallin, wonderful Amy Dallin, geeking out Mm. about D&D every week. (laughs) Uh, So many exciting things, I think, that D&D is such a huge game and has so much history behind it. And also there are so many tools to use that uh, Mm. I'm a big fan of for D&D Beyond, D&D Beyond Live. Uh, And the streams are also just a really great way to be like, look at this really cool thing about D&D and look at this really cool tool. And also we're having fun together. Uh, Mm. So it's great. Is there any streams uh, recently? I know you took a look at the Adventurers League um, the favorite queer characters uh, in Dungeons and Dragons were some of the more recent streams. Uh, build a battle. The community votes build a battle using the uh, the uh, uh, D&D Beyond uh, kind of encounter building uh, software. How was that stream? Was that a lot of fun? That was it, so fun because it was. it was something that is my favorite thing to do, which is taking two people that I love and respect very dearly, the two people being Latia and Amy, <laughs> And then making them apples to apples style debate two different choices and making the audience decide which Precisely. one to choose. Um, a, a little a little moot court of my own. It's a very it's a very large joy for me. It's always a good time. We always wish that the streams were longer. Yeah, <laughs> especially when we have guests on who are super knowledgeable about what we're whatever it is we're talking about that week. I love a really everyone's good, so meaty, interesting. Yeah, I love a good meaty discussion and uh if you know we could just kind of do that all day sort of uh Mm. would would be super super enjoyable for me i feel that way about this podcast a lot of the time yeah i i cheat a little bit and go over time as often as i can (sighs) just to i'm like uh i i don't have to be anywhere i feel really bad for other people's time sometimes but uh (laughs) like eh, this is an interesting topic let's uh let's keep going and ben's like this is on company time let's keep it running (laughs) (laughs) uh cosmic postman asking in the chat does adventurers league still exist yes buddy does adventurers league still exist i wouldn't i didn't know what it was maybe five years ago here in Australia, here in Melbourne specifically, it wasn't huge, I don't think. And then it just exploded out of nowhere. Uh, And we have a really strong Adventurers League program going here in Melbourne. Shout out to anybody who is in the Adventurers League here in Melbourne running it. Um, They're at every convention that we have here. It's it's going gangbusters. So similarly, um, uh, Kazakh Postman, uh, the revised fifth edition, the 2024 rules are, we're still waiting to see how they will affect uh adventures league but right now it's like you can't play test any of that stuff but uh like you can't play test any of that stuff while playing adventures league but the 2024 core rules will probably not affect it much but don't quote me on that because i'm not writing them so i don't know but it will be something that gets um you know it'll get reviewed the same way every every new book does with how you know what's going to fit in adventures league or not but yeah to your point actually uh ben about conventions that's Primarily, or, I mean, I know non non Adventures League D and D games are run in conventions all over, um, but mm. that's mostly what I know. Like, if I'm going to a convention and D and D is being run, nine times out of ten, and it's a lot of D and D, nine times out of ten, it's Adventures League because I don't have to do anything beyond like creating a character at level one or level five, um, following those guidelines, and then just hop in. There's like no obligation to stay for longer than you want whether it's a two-hour mm. game or a four-hour game i just i love the the kind of pick up and play of adventures league that's how i got back into dnd for sure for i think sure. i remember one of my first experiences like actually meeting you in person latia was either at origins or maybe it was game hole con or something like that game and we just con. kind of it was game hole con yeah the only time i'd ever been to game hole con we just kind of bumped into each other in the al room and that was the ale room that that con in particular was, it felt like it had such huge, vibrant, excellent energy. It, it is the, well, it, it was the biggest one, like the biggest Adventurers League, like, you know, section of a convention. Mm. Um, it probably still is. Um, I know Gen Con has a big AL presence, but like, there's really nothing like it at Game Hole Con. You got to come back. Well, is does Origin still do an, uh, the D&D Open? No. That's such a shame. I know. 
there's still epics, but the uh, I don't think there's been an open in a couple years. Yeah, I I remember with such vivid clarity uh, being kind of wrangled in at the last second to <laughs> DM a special table for the Tomb of Annihilation era open. When we had, you know, they had like the the cosplay goblin creatures, the Cholton goblins kind of crawling around. And that particular open was a race as all parties tried to get to the center of this death trap labyrinth. I know, Sarah, we talked about what epics were during our stream where there yes. are all the tables collaborating to do a thing. Opens mm-hmm. are all the tables racing to be the first to do a thing. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. You gotcha. and I have a mind meld because at the moment an opening was going to happen, I was going to be like, and for the audience and me. <laughs> well, I've, I've well, DM'd in an epic before, but I didn't know the difference between an epic and an open. So there you the, go. The, the D&D open kind of evolved out of tournament play, D&D tournament play, mm-hmm. the same sort of crucible that gave us Tomb of Horrors way oh. back in the 70s or 80s. Um, so yeah, the, the D&D open kind of race against uh, 50 to 100 tables all yeah. in one big ballroom. Uh, and it's so cool. Uh, and I was roped in by, it must have been Amy Lynn Jura, who uh, pulled me yeah. up to some balcony and was like, uh, go go DM this table. And I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, are they, what are they doing? What and, am I running? Uh, <laughs> so what I was running was, it was for the five tables who got to the heart of this Cholton Labyrinth, the first, uh, and they had to go through this kind of this riddle, this weird riddle. And uh, it was to get a special prize. And they had no idea that what was going on beneath them, they were kind of, uh, they were actually being uh, very sneakily sort of like time penalized for being there first. Because what was happening down below is a enormous zombie T-Rex was emerging from the heart of the labyrinth. And like, chasing everyone out of the labyrinth now, like a horde of these undead dinosaurs. Oh. So now as everyone had raced it to the center, they're like, woohoo, we did it. Oh, crap. And they all <laughs> turned around yes. and fled via another route all the way out. And so this group at the uh, in the middle, they were like, you know, they were a half hour behind everyone else. But they also got this opportunity to get a very cool treasure along mm-hmm. the way. Competitive race combat sounds so up my alley. Like, <laughs> I love trying to be as fast as possible. That's great. I just imagine it's frantic at the table, though, as the GM's like, okay, uh, roll uh, roll for initiative. I mean, roll uh, charisma check. And the player's just like, I don't have time. Okay, there. Just like dropping you know, dice it, as quick as you can. Yeah, and it's it's like you're not, like, so there is a time limit in which everybody has to do this, but the way that, like, epics and opens and, things with, you know, multi-table events are kind of written is that you Mm. don't necessarily feel rushed like that at the table because, you know, after, Mm. you know, it's like after so, after so many rounds, you know, maybe that is in a certain amount of combat, a certain amount of time that has passed in the adventure and then you're moving on to something else. So like, it sounds a lot more harried than it is, but it's, it's not. (laughs) Gotcha. I do remember the players at my table were getting quite frustrated with me for reading the entire box text. <laughs> <laughs> what I am hearing from this is that there's still a market for super competitive fast combat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I want to see like a big game store with a large clientele do like kind of almost like a magic pre-release, right? Mm-hmm. Have like an epic that they just run at the game store because I've only ever seen them done at conventions. At and convention. Maybe that's the way they're intended to be, but to have one game store like Card Kingdom here in Seattle or something like that do do an epic the way they do a pre-release. I'd, that love, would be I'd love for that to happen anywhere. Like, yeah. You really only need four, like minimum four tables to get an epic going. Um, you know, mm-hmm. obviously you can have kind of as many as you want, but really it's just like maybe four or five tables to get an epic going because and, and then it's like cozy oh. and, and everything's working. So in the in the D&D next era, right, almost 10 years ago now, uh, mm-hmm. the playtest for fifth edition, there was a sort of I, I guess it was like a proto epic called confrontation at Candlekeep, I think. That's the one where you're up on the spires of Candlekeep and a blue dragon is sort of swooping table to table, uh, haranguing you as you try and defend Candlekeep from cultists. It was so cool. There is an anime convention here in Seattle called SakuraCon. That epic was being run for a lot of people there. Uh, I've I've never been, but my brother uh, was super into the anime scene at that point and was kind of D&D curious and was over there. 
And and this has got to be like 2013. Got to be 2013 mm-hmm. when this yep. is happening. Fun uh, fact. Because mm. uh, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but fun fact, I just looked it up. Uh, your podcast co-host, Sean Merwin, was one of the writers of this. There we go. Oh, oh, I wish well, Sean was here so I could happens. give him this wild <laughs> right? bit of trivia. Because that what very happens, frequently is like, I ran this adventure once. And Sean's like, I wrote that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so so my brother sits down at this one table and is like, yeah, I'll play some D&D. And then uh, out of nowhere, they've wrangled one of the guests of honor at the con to be the dragon. And keep in mind, this is right. 2013. This is before any of this happened. Matthew Mercer steps out to run the blue dragon. Yes. <laughs> Swooping between tables. Because at that point, he's just a D&D geek who's fresh off the back of like, right. I don't know, Fire Emblem Awakening or something like that. Right. And he's just like, yeah, I'll do some D&D stuff. So That's that so was a, just such a good story for him. Um, well, Latia and Sarah, you being community managers, obviously your role stretches beyond just the Twitch channel. I did want to ask, because we're talking about community so much. Um, what do you love about the the D and D community since you've stepped into your roles, and and what are you really enjoying about getting to interact, whether it's at conventions, online, during streams, on social media? I love that no one can tell me I'm wrong about D and D anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am D and D. No, no, no. Uh, I, I mean, the thing that I have always loved about any community that I get into is being able to get more of a bird's eye view, as it were, of all of the different ways and places that people enjoy something. And so that's always something that I've been passionate about in TTRPGs in general. But uh, getting to work so closely with D&D and with Latia so that we can kind of like tag team to make sure that we're covering as many areas as possible. It's just so wonderful to be like, okay, this is what D&D means to uh, people who create content. This is what D&D means to the people who have been playing since uh, it first came out in the 80s. This is what D&D oh. means to the person who just picked it up with 5th edition. And we get to find a way to service all of those people who are fans. That's a really difficult job, but when we do it right, it's so fulfilling to look at something and put a stamp on it and say that, like, we were able to create something that benefited this community that has been here for going on 50 years now. So, Mm. it's really great. Uh, 100% that. Um, One of the things that I enjoy about being a a community manager is, uh, like Sarah said, being able to help all of these different facets of the of the community but also just like getting to hear all of their stories also Mm -hmm. um which is one of the reasons why i like i know we're not just talking about the stream but it's one of the reasons why i like having people on so much because then you get to like actually like see and be a part of other people's stories as they create or as they dm or as they you know what they feel about something that they watched that you know was dnd related um I love just getting to go to, a, I love, I'm, I'm a big events person, right? Um, have been mm-hmm. since before I became a community manager. Um, I love going to events and seeing people enjoying D&D and, you know, in some instances, like getting to facilitate their enjoyment of D&D because I used to be a convention DM um, and just kind of, continuing to facilitate that joy and being able to facilitate it at a higher level to make sure that everybody, mm-hmm. everybody can enjoy D and D who wants to. Mm. Yes. And that's like, that's the second part for me that it's like, there's a little bit of meanness in this part of the answer, but also a lot of joy and, and inclusiveness, <laughs> which is getting to say like who D and D is for, which is there's, there's been so much time. Like when I first got into the hobby when uh, like I didn't feel oh. as welcome and I felt like I had to like push through a lot of barriers to get into oh. it. And uh, I think something that Latia and I are both always working at is saying like, no, you can be here and you can be playing and uh, this game is for you, which is fantastic. Uh, yeah. That does make some people angry, but what's he gonna do? <laughs> yeah. exactly. And let no one tell you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One exactly. of the things 
one of the things, like one of the little selfish things that I love about being community manager and especially being community manager with Sarah is that the representatives of the community right now are a queer black woman and a queer and a queer non-binary person. And there's nothing that you can yeah. do about that. <laughs> so uh, take that, everybody else. <laughs> it's so good. No, that's awesome to hear. Um, and it is a, a great community to to feel part of and not be wrong about D&D ever again. Yes, um, exactly. We are D&D now. We make the answers. How much do you see ahead of time? And is that one of the joys of your role? Hmm. I'll answer the second question and say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. That's, yeah. All, that's yeah. all I need. That's fine. That's all I need. Very <laughs> joyful. Thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, great. Good joy. Ten great out of ten things. Would recommend. Uh, yeah. Can say in more general terms, uh, we love the studio team so much. They're so cool. Uh, yeah. And it's always a joy to be able to talk to them and hear all of their amazing ideas. Little bit of a lighter news week, strictly speaking, um, but there were two videos released. Um, with uh, Justice Armin uh, talking and Mackenzie de Armas uh, from mm. the design team, just talking about what they loved about the game with uh, Todd Kenrick. Um, Love uh, these videos. And the, the very, very interesting, very specific questions uh, in those videos that came out to me. I pulled out two for the podcast um, that they were discussing, the first of which is, uh, what is your favourite monster to run? as a GM and the specificity of this question, specificity of this question being not just what's your favorite monster from the monster manual, but what is your favorite monster to run? Because for me, like everybody knows I love a vampire. <clears throat> I favorite monsters, easily vampires. Uh, I will say that all day, but I so rarely run them because I want to build up their sense of gravitas within the campaign. It's like, if you get a, an ancient vampire, upset and in full fury you've messed up you know this is suddenly a call of cthulhu game and you better run away uh so i so rarely get to actually run them because of the the amount of gravity that i want to put behind them what's a monster that you love running uh for your players Ags. Ags. <laughs> so okay you know what I'll, I'll answer this in the same way that you did ben my favorite monsters are hags my favorite monsters to run are just the little guys the goblins the kobolds because you can run them so many different ways in the same campaign. <laughs> yeah. So you true. Can, yeah, you can have a full colony of kobolds that are like, you know, you've got the kind of vicious ones who uh, attack at first sight, and then you've got like two or three of them who just want to draw little paintings on the walls of their, of their you know, their little hovel. Um, it's not the word I'm looking for, but it'll it'll find me. Um, I just love the little guys because there's just so much there, there's so much variety. I mean, they're they're kind of just like people um, in that there's just so much variety in them, and so there's just so many different ways that you can, you know, warp a player and a character's perception of them in one mm. session. <laughs> I'll never forget. I had a game. I've told this story probably on the Lawcast a hundred times. But, you know, goblins represented in the campaigns that I was running as vicious little kind of conniving, um, thieving little creatures. And I never felt so much sympathy for one when my cleric in the party made a deal with one of the goblins and was like, look, you can go uh, if you tell us everything about the the boss up ahead. And the goblin was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. And the cleric's like, great, tell us what you know. I'll even shake on it. And as they go for the handshake, the cleric says, I cast Inflict Wounds. And I'm just like, oh, no, no. well, it hits, I suppose. Uh, he just fought, because the goblin's got, what, seven hit points and Inflict yeah. Wounds is 3d10 or something off the top of my head. I was just like, he just splits apart. He just turns to mush no. in your hands. Uh, oh. You horrible, horrible, Every goblin evil person. is a sympathetic creature from now in the campaign, and it's <laughs> exactly. your fault, cleric. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, Exactly that. <laughs> I judge people, like not really judge people, but it's one of my favorite things to ask people who have played Lost Mine of Fandelver. Do they save Droop? Mm -hmm. If you've never played it Lost Mine of Fandelver, it, it, it may it might have, have been Droop. Oh, God. Um, but yes, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite questions to ask people is like, if you have played Lost Mind, what do you do with Droop? Because 
slight spoilers for the the starter set Lost Mind of Fandelver, but he's just a little guy who's been like taken captive by a bunch of like bugbears and you have the opportunity <sighs> to save him or to, you know, end his life with the rest of the people in the hideout. And um, the first time I played through it, I, we saved him. He became a paladin. He tragically lost his life during the green dragon fight. And no. I, somewhere I still have a screenshot of the of the roll 20 where we like gave him a full funeral complete with sad music. <coughs> it's one of my most memorable. It's one of my most memorable games ever. But like oh. I need people, you know, I'm going to start a save that save droop campaign. <laughs> mm-hmm. we'll I need people going. If you don't say if you save one goblin in your entire D&D career, let it be droop. <laughs> My D&D happy place, the sort of like when I just go absolute zen, is when there's a moment in the campaign that is simultaneously hilarious and utterly heartbreaking. You're like crying, <laughs> laughing through the tears or crying through the laughter. I don't, I'm not sure which, but when you get those both things in perfect balance, it's just, to me. I'm a horror GM. I... I'm not always, but when I am not, it is a concerted effort to not be. I, I'm just a big <laughs> fan of it, so it always skews that way. Uh, and and I always clear it with my players. I'm like, are we good with spooky times? And they're like, yeah, we're good. So we go for it. Uh, so my favorite monster to run kind of sits in that vein um, because I think one of the saddest, most disappointing things, uh, to your point, Ben, of like building up the vampire and making it truly terrifying mm. in horror a lot of times there's so much buildup and then the reveal is lackluster like once you yeah. see the thing it's not as scary and so yeah. i have a lot of love for monsters that live up to the buildup as it were and my biggest one for that is the nightwalker uh yes gigantic creature mm-hmm. um from the realm of shadows from what i remember and there is just it's basically every kind of, if you've seen those videos online that people uh, manipulate uh, video to make it look like there's this huge like siren creature walking oh, through the city sure, and it's sure. thousands of feet tall. That's a Nightwalker, essentially. And yeah. like no lair actions, no legendary actions, uh, just 200 some hit points of raw nightmare fuel. And... <laughs> There's uh, a lot of you can have a lot of fun with doing a lot of that buildup and then having them like emerge from the mist like limb by limb. And it's super creepy. And usually what I do in order to run it, because they are really hard and the CR for them is high, uh, is pull out my old trick that I do often, which is um, hurting them a lot before the players encounter them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, very scary, very hard, but maybe only has 100 hit points. So that's usually how I end up running them. They're great. This is to clarify, because we've got someone asking in the chat, uh, and I have two questions. This is the thing, I think it originally in 5e at least, appeared in Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Mm -hmm. It's like all inky kind of purple, and it's got the Mm -hmm. goat's horns at the top of its head. Yeah, those things are... I've had a miniature set aside to run one of those, and I've just never gotten around to it because of its CR is just way too high. It's real high. Um, I've always kept it in reserve because it makes me think of the creature at the end of Princess Mononoke. Uh, <gasps> yes! That steps yeah. over the hills. Yeah. And I'm like, that movie means so much to me that if I'm going to invoke that, it's got to be really damn special. Yeah. yeah. How many times have you run this, Sarah? You, it sounds practiced. <laughs> I have run the Nightwalker three times. Um, the, I think, best time that I ran it, the one that I'm like the most proud of, is that uh, it was in the context of an adventure where it was actually all of my players were the sidekicks of great heroes, and they were very sick of being sidekicks. They were at a festival to celebrate the heroes, and then a Nightwalker came to town, killed all the heroes, and then the sidekicks were like, oh my God, and had to defeat the Nightwalker. And I think that was maybe the best I've ever ran it uh, because mm. uh, it was just a great setup. The players had a lot of fun stepping into the roles of heroes and it was it was really great. 
Oh, Sarah, you've inspired me to go horrific for this one, too. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Big fans of this podcast will know that my typical answer for a question like this is a mind flare, which I love because they've got that sort of like, you can make them big and spooky masterminds, but you can also make them a sort of B-movie horror sort of creature. Um, But uh, talking about the Nightwalker, I first encountered that in third edition. And so my mind is drifting back to the first time I looked through the third edition monster manual. Mm. And I'm thinking of the Bodak, another creature that's updated to 5e. But when I run them in 5e, I, I make their mechanics their iconic death gaze mechanic, the way it worked in third edition, because Ooh. it sent a chill down my spine. It's, it's, it's not quite as spooky in 5e. So when I go to third edition, this is its ability. Death gaze, supernatural, death, range 30 feet, fortitude, DC 15. Uh, if you fail a DC 15 con save, when it looks at you, you die. And mm-hmm. then 24 hours later, you also become a Bodak. Oh, <sighs> Um, so, I love some of those old mechanics that were just absolutely merciless. Just like, so I'm not really going to use them on my party necessarily, but yeah. it's just delicious to read, yeah. you know? And Thanks so for when, when there's stuff oh. like that, right? Uh, when there's stuff like that, it, it's it's incumbent on me as a DM to like encounter design them into a way that they're not just me being a dick to the party. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. like in, in 5e, they're, they're like the remnants of Orcus cultists or something like that. So I will be like, yeah. This this lair that you've gone into, symbols of Orcus all over the place. There are scrawlings on the wall, like sort of Dead Space style, right? Dead Space is like, shoot <laughs> yeah. the limbs! Or yeah. like here, it's like, don't look into the mouth! Or something like that. Because Vodex, right, they have that long, long mouth. Yeah. Uh, and the, like you know, her, all the four heroes. on the wall just says, insta-death. Like, what, that- <laughs> <laughs> what could that mean? <laughs> don't fail con save. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the only almost TPKs I have had at a table as DMs, as a DM, were because of Bodex. I love them because they, like, that that field of negative energy just means that the party are constantly taking damage. There's no Mm -hmm. way to avoid damage in the presence of a Bodex, which... You know, I, I've played games with 14th level characters and there was a, I think they were even multi-classed monk rogue and I just couldn't hit them because they had a, a evasion, which means that they didn't take any damage if they succeeded on a deck mm. save and their deck save was like plus 11 and their armor class was through the roof as well. And they were supposed to be fighting a field of giants that were like throwing rocks and stomping the ground and all this sort of jazz. And I just could not hit this rogue monk at all with anything. He took no mm. damage during the entire battle. Um, and so a Bodak kind of speaks to me because I'm like, oh, yeah, they need to be afraid. They need to be mm-hmm. cautious with this thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, since we're kind of on a horror kick, one monster that I've always wanted to run since it came out was is the Oblex. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. The Oblex is a good run. Oblexes are so, they speak to me as a person who loves living houses. Put this one in your in your in your pocket, DMs. If you want to run Death House and give it a little extra oomph, put an Oblex Ooh. in the basement <laughs> and just have it, you know, have it Oblex its way around the house. And just, you just, know just what? go with that. Yeah. What I love about that concept, Latia, is that if it's like an old house that has uh, let's say, um, what goes in the padding that goes inside the house's walls? Oh, like oh, the insulation. Uh, insulation. Like the, the insulation. You know, the insulation that's kind of died out over the years. Hope not. Uh, it is an ooze. <laughs> so it can just be ooze in all the walls of the house. And mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yeah, I love no, that. That's, that's how it that you can one-up it. Because I'm a person who, Death House is one of the things that I run for, uh, for people who are new to D&D and appreciate a horror vibe. So if you right. have run it repeatedly and you have people who you who are willing to tell or like you remember those games, you remember those experiences, you can have that Oblex inhabit the characters that had been in the house previously. Mm. And, you know, they mm. can hear the sounds of combat coming from elsewhere. But when, you know, the the current play, the current characters get up there, there's nothing, you know, and it's just it's just so good and juicy and lovely. 
Mm. I'm literally putting this in my pocket for a game I'm about to run. <laughs> Back when I was with D&D Beyond, one of the encounters of the week that I wrote was Oblex themed. I don't remember the name of it, but if you go through the DDB archives uh, and you like hunt for Oblex in the articles list, I'm sure you'll I'm find a really buy. fun sort of like pod people village where there's like an Oblex nest deep in the caverns beneath it all. Um, the the innkeeper is trying to keep the secret. Like there's one sort of elder Oblex. It's essentially everyone in town trying to keep mm. the player characters from finding out the secret. Mm. Yeah. That, so that was About a fun that. one. For I ran an adventure a while ago now, and it was like an elven ruin that some catastrophe had had befallen the elves there. And I didn't want to use undead because I like to keep undead kind of in a little bit of a sacred place over here where it's so rare to encounter them and it keeps their horror. But I wanted them to, the party to be able to know the story of what had happened in this place. I just didn't want ghosts and spirits wandering around. So I decided that what had happened was an Oblex or multiple Oblex had kind of come in, eaten the bones of the elves after the uh, catastrophe had befallen, absorbed their memories and was basically thought it was them, and so played mm. out scenes. Mm. So every time the party would enter a room, a scene would be playing out. They entered like a courtroom with a throne and everything, and the Oblex is everyone in the room playing out this scene that would happen, that that did happen. You know, it's the history of these elves as they're going from room to room. If the party didn't interact with it at all, it would play out, and then the Oblex would smush and then go back and start, like, first positions, everyone, and then just do the scene again. <laughs> over and over again, but if the party did interfere, then all the people went from being, like, nice courtly elves and just, and just, like, complex kind of horror. Yeah, Um, Oblex just wants to have its its little movie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They've been rehearsing for 500 years. They've got to get the opening (laughs) night is coming up, people. (laughs) I love that. I I have to give it up, uh, too. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of my favorite Oblexes in a game. I didn't run this, but a a very wonderful and talented GM of mine that had an Oblex bartender in a city that ate an adventuring party who's... uh, big thing that they wanted to do was retire with their money and open a bar. And the Oblex was like, I guess that's my dream now. And went into the city and opened a bar. Wait, that's so <laughs> And all of the though. adventuring party runs the bar. That is the memories oh, of these people. That's yeah. It's real cute. It is. While we're talking about spooky monsters, I really want to give it up for, for Mac for Mackenzie Darmus also, mm. because uh, when, when we were doing call of the nether deep together, uh, Mercer and I came up with some very broad monster concepts for the horrible abyssal, not like demon abyssal, but like deep sea trench abyssal, uh, sea creatures down there in the final dungeon. Uh, and she took all of those very brief prompts, you know, little paragraph long prompts and between her monster stats and crystal Sully's illustrations, I think those are some oh, of my favorite man, creepy yeah. monsters mm-hmm. of all time. Like there's one in particular, I mean, they're, they're all great. They're all horrifying. Uh, like the, you know, like the jellyfish that turns you to stone and then, you know, wraps you up in its tendrils. But the one that I think of most is the, the, the blood fin, which mm-hmm. when it snares you, it doesn't just hurt you, but it steals the light, the, the, the magical light that you're casting to see in this pitch black deep sea trench. Yeah. And it will just like, you don't have that anymore. Oh, did you need that light? No, I'm no, eating it's, that. It's mine now. <laughs> yeah, that's mine now. Amazing. <laughs> um, and and that that's such like a weird idea to be like, yeah, go make a monster that eats your light. And yeah. and Mac killed it. Mac found a, such a great way to make that mechanic come alive. Oh, it's the light devourer, right? Not the not the bloodfin. Name says what it does on the tin. <laughs> Speaking of horrible monsters, James. Uh, the Ethereal Expanse setting guide is currently on Kickstarter. Um, there is a link. I'm going to put it in the Twitch chat right now. Don't worry, Hannah, I got you back because I realized I got it the wrong way around. Um, but if you're watching this on YouTube, James, if you want to point off over your left shoulder in that direction, right? no, wait, it would be that way. Yeah, that way. One of the ways. There'll be a link up there. You'll be able to see it. It'll be down in the description as well. Uh, check out the Kickstarter. It's a lot of fun. James, how hyped are you that this Kickstarter is still going? 
Oh, Ben, I'm so hyped. That, that it's been going for like, what, less than a week and we've blown through our original funding goal and it's only going wilder and wilder. Mm. Uh, I love the ethereal expanse. I want people to love it as much as I do. Uh, and it's going to be such a cool book. Look at the art of that book. It's already amazing. Oh, so beautiful. It is so good. That's one it's of gonna my have those, things about it. You know, those super intense ship combat rules we were talking about earlier, it's going to have all these ethereal, astral, uh, oceanic monsters in it, some which, some of which you may recognize from the Ethereal Expanse adventure, some I'm sure will be brand new, uh, and there's going to be a lot of stuff also uh, that we just could not get into in the original Ethereal Expanse setting guide. We're going to go far beyond the boundaries of the Expanse. We're going to go into the specific islands. We're going to go into the gods of the Expanse. Uh and it really just is, in my opinion, the the natural, logical extreme of where D&D takes us. Um, well, while we still have time, let us quickly jump topic um, because we have some listener emails. If you want to email this Yay. podcast, uh, you can email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Uh, and we will get around and I will take those emails and I will read them here to the folks on this panel, starting with Samuel's question. Uh, Samuel asking about they are coming to the end of their campaign and they want to have a massive climactic battle with tens of thousands of soldiers and airships and siege weaponry and dragons and all sorts of things uh, besieging a giant capital city ruled by an evil emperor um, and basically wondering, uh, in my words, how do this? Uh, mm -hmm. Keeping the action concise, tense, fast-paced, uh, but also engaging uh, and still incorporating that sense of scale so the party feel like they're part of a, a larger encounter as it's happening. Sarah, I know uh, you've been excited to answer this question. Take it <laughs> away. So excited. Uh, and, of course, I'm sure that uh, anyone who wants to jump in as well, totally welcome to. This is something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, a lot of the things that I've learned about this come from uh, MCDM's Kingdom and Warfare that talks a lot about how to uh, run the mechanics of these large battles, sieges, warfare, etc. cetera. Uh, I think that you can take what you want from it in terms of how complicated you want it to be because it gets really into the weeds and it gets really complicated. But the biggest things that I usually take for when there's like big war and battle is... Uh, First of all, that you divide all of these numbers into units and give a certain amount of units to each player yes. up to uh, what yes. they recommend is up to your proficiency bonus. So if you're like end of campaign, you could have plus five, plus six proficiency. Each person gets six units uh, and they get to decide the players get to decide what their units do. So maybe uh, your paladin gets some airships, some artillery fire and some infantrymen. And on a certain round of combat, they're like, okay, I want my infantrymen to attack the wall. I want my airships to go straight for the tower. And I want the artillery to go full force at the gate. And then you resolve all of that with rolls. And uh, you can really streamline big sieges and still make them feel like larger than life that way. And then balance that with your players having one-to-one -one combat with some mm. kind of big, bad, evil guy. So you'll have all of it resolving simultaneously. They usually recommend um, resolve one battle per turn. So uh, there's going to be like six or seven battles in a round of combat. And so do they do well? Do they do poorly? And if you do well, you get something called a morale surge for your player characters, and they get to do a little bit better. And if they do poorly, you might get a negative to your fighting because, oh, no, my my units aren't doing as well as I think. And I think that gives like a really good sense of stakes for players sure. that feels really epic and amazing. Uh, I've always had a lot of fun with it. I was going to say something similar. Um, I have not done battles like, like that on such a huge scale, but it does remind me of when I played the hardcover Out of the Abyss. Um, mm -hmm. Spoilers for Out of the Abyss. At the end of it, all of the demon lords have a battle. Mm. It's a big old battle royale. And what my DM did was he gave all of the players a demon lord and then we fought. And so, yes, once that fight was over, it was up to our our characters to take care of whatever was left. So, you know, if if that um, 
similar, like, like, like what, what Sarah just said that is in kingdoms and warfare, like if the battles are all resolved and then you've got like maybe one unit left, then that's also, that's a combat that the characters can handle, you know, sure. but I, I love, I, I also love the questions that you picked because Sarah was so excited to answer that one. And I didn't say that I was excited to answer the next one, but the next one is like something that I actually have experience <laughs> with. Um, so okay, thank you gotcha. for perpetuating our mind meld. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad we could do that. Uh, just quickly, James, have you, I mean. I have nothing to add to that. Oh, that really? is fantastic. Um, I honestly, I try to avoid battles like that whenever I can, just because I've, I've, never come up with a good idea when it comes to handling mass combat. And uh, my, my experience with MCDM big books is more strongholds and followers in kingdoms and warfare, but you know, mm. I would love now, now that, now that you brought it up, Sarah, I'm, I'm very interested to read what it, it gets really complicated that. in a really fun way. If you like crunch, uh, but it also provides a lot of, you can scale. Hey, man, look easily. at our ship combat in pirates of the ethereal. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, for real. Speaking of crunchy, um, or not crunchy, uh, is the rating mechanics in Valica, uh, which mm. is what I thought you were going to say, Joey, but, uh, well, James, Oh so. yeah, that's, that's a good point. Honestly, I, uh, I guess that is, what people might be looking for when they think about a mass combat system. Um, because I went in completely the opposite direction when we were building Raider's Guide to Valica, where rather than, uh, and, and, and this is very sort of like DM driven, right? The DM goes and creates a bunch of conflict zones where battle can happen rather than handing these things over into the player's hands, which I think is where I always get tripped up. It's like players go, you know, do the battle in whatever way you see fit. Uh, the Raiders rules really give the players uh, a mass of units and then say, divide them up into battalions, whoever you want to, and then use those to kind of poke at these uh, highly specific conflict zones as you try and push towards a centralized objective. Mm. Thanks for reminding me about that, Ben. Man, I must have been, <laughs> my mind must have been elsewhere. Well, I it's on my mind at the, at the moment because I'm trying, like it was designed specifically for sort of like capturing villages or capturing, um, you know, settlements with a castle or something like that. But I'm uh, playing with it at the moment in my home game uh, for a big battle that I hope will come up in Astoia, which is the kind of gothic horror vampire uh, ruled region of Etheris. And I want to have a pitched battle kind of across a city rather than necessarily invading a city, if that makes sense. Um, oh, yeah. To see if I can use those rules to simulate kind of like street fighting um, in different sections and who ends up with control of it at the at the end of the day. Um, but I did do a, a large-scale battle uh, that was relatively simple. This was years ago now. Basically, what I did was set the... It was like a city that the party had to try get into. They were the aggressors in this circumstance. Um, and so I, I came up with a bunch of NPCs uh, for both sides of the battle and assigned them like a number based on how strong that NPC is and a kind of like role or special skill. So mm -hmm. like uh, one of them was a were raven and he was like an assassin and one of them was a, uh, you know, was more like a leader and so could inspire more troops. And so uh, the party had the choice of where to assign these, um, uh, you know, specific NPCs. And secretly as the GM, I'm assigning the, the adversarial NPCs into different roles. Um, the players don't know where the adversarial NPCs are going, but they can try to assign the good ones. So the were-ravens like, okay, I'm going to try and assassinate this general on the other uh, army so that, to take that piece off the board um, without knowing necessarily where they would be. You could assign the assassin to lead the army, but you might want the person who's got like the aspiring leader skill to be, to be that person. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some choice going in there, then let it kind of play out, but then zoom in on the party and be like, all right, what role do you want to do? Do you actually want to go with the assassin and try to infiltrate? Or do you want to be part of the big battle and hit the wall? Or do you want to, you know, try to capture this specific objective that's really important so that everything's happening around the party and there's a lot of description around like, yes, you hear what's going on over here and you can hear them saying, we've captured the bell tower or whatever. So you know your allies are doing well over there while you're here fighting over the market square or something like that. So it feels zoomed in, 
but like there's still something happening kind of around them. And then as I imagine a lot of these battles, you know, taking hours to happen, there's a a bit of consolidation. So the party could come back together with the important generals of their own army and be like, all right, what do we want to do for the next stage? So it was kind of like set up, release, set up, release, and and see what would happen uh, as things were going. So look for a subsystem that speaks to you. And if you want highly crunchy, uh, the highly crunchy approach, look towards MCDM's Kingdom and Warfare. If you want a streamlined, more mini game approach, look to Raider's Guide to Valica from, you know, us folks at Ghostfire. And then no matter which way you cut it, find ways to really zoom in on specific actions mm. while the big battle is raging around them. Um, All right, let's quickly jump uh, to our next question. Alexander uh, asking, is it okay slash safe? I think safe was my word, but kind of wondering if they needed to take precautions to play D&D in public spaces such as libraries, restaurants, pubs. I'm kind of taking this to not necessarily mean like a game store, uh, a Mm -hmm. place where D&D is not, it's not purpose built to play D&D in. Uh, Is there an etiquette to follow? Should you take precautions? Uh, a spectator's a problem. Um, should you prepare for interruptions? Uh, Latia, take it away. <laughs> so I have played uh, D&D in all of these places. <laughs> um, so libraries, absolutely. Libraries are going to love it if you want to come and play D&D. Ask them if they have a room that you can go into that is, you know, kind of closed off from the rest of the library um, and where you can probably be a little bit louder. Um, they love, like, I mean... There is a lot, like not not to get real for a second, but there's a lot going on that is a threat to libraries these days. And uh, yeah. if they can have more people in them doing things using their facilities and making them seem, uh, you know, making making use of 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 what they have, the better. You know, um, uh, at at my local library, actually, we took a big meeting room to play D anD D for you know a, a a short campaign, and it was it was great. You know. Um, they were like, you can have this, you know, if you need anything, let us know. Otherwise, you know, this is your space for two or three hours, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was great. Um, and I also have run D and D at libraries as part of like an after school program, which is another fantastic yeah. thing. So yeah, um, to get the libraries out of the way, absolutely. Just ask, um, you know, they may have some guidelines for you that, you know, you, you should follow, but yeah, playing at a library is like absolutely no problem as long as you are, again, at any place, as long as you're quiet and respectful to people around you. Now, sure. playing That's at a restaurant. Funny. Yeah, exactly. Um, playing at a restaurant is a little more difficult, but not impossible. Um, this is an, another game that I played at a at a restaurant that was actually the restaurant that we went to, that the adults went to after the after school program. So they were familiar with us, first of all. Um, Again, ask them if there's any kind of like guidelines that that they want to that that they would like you to follow or, you know, if they have like a party room that you can borrow for, you know, the desired length of the game that you would like to play. Um, It's a little different at a restaurant because they kind of need those tables to make money. The servers do. So don't just go and play. Have dinner while you play, you know, um, order, you know, order your appetizers, order dinner, have a break, you know, keep keep the drinks flowing, the the, the soft drinks or whatever. Um, be nice to your servers, because especially if if you're if you've been helped by a server for that entire time, make sure that, you know, you're respectful to them as well. And, you know, uh, all that stuff. Um, give a good tip. Yes, tip absolutely. Well. Give a good tip um, because. You know, you have been their table for three hours when they probably could have had three times as many customers if you had only been there for a for a meal. Um, so definitely tip well. But as long as you, it, it all comes down to respect and we talk about this a lot in our streams as well, when we when you kind of want to do anything or approach anything new, just kind of treat it with with re- the respect that you would want if this were kind of if the situation were reversed on you. Um, spectators depends on where you are in the place at the restaurant that I played D and D at, we had a big table in the back. So 
spectators weren't really a thing unless they were like blatantly walking back to say, hey, what are you guys doing? And then we'd be like, oh, we're playing D&D. And then people would be like, they would either be like, oh, that's cool. Or, oh, that's weird. And then they just walk off. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sure. But yeah, if you if you do it right, you know, like like I said, getting getting a room or a place in the back of the restaurant where you won't be disturbed. Spectators shouldn't you usually aren't a problem. Um, And then, you know, you might have some people who are like, oh, what's going on in your game? If they're, you know, D&D inclined as well. Yeah. And I don't I don't think restaurants and pubs are necessarily like. They're, they can be really fun and great place, especially like pubs and bars are really fun. Mm-hmm. I usually adhere to the two to three hour rule. You should not be playing in a restaurant or a pub any longer than two to three hours. Any yeah. longer than that, and you're going to start making a problem. But for those two to three hours, you might even make your waiter or waitress have a nice time in the day being like, there was a D&D table at my work today. It'd be Get really fun. Your- Get your wait. If you're the DM, get your waiter, get, get your server to uh, have do a roll for you every time they come to the table. Yeah. Make, make the, if <laughs> oh, they want to, cute. of course, like, you know, if 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 they're interested, have them do a roll because that'll get them involved. It'll make them have a really great time during their shift and they'll look forward to coming yeah. to your table more often. <laughs> I recommend looking around if you can for a multi-use community center uh, in in Seattle. There is a there's a great bookstore called Third Place Books um, that talks about you know that mythical third place. It is not home. It is not uh, like yeah. a place where you spend money. It's a place for yeah. you to be you, right? And so not only are they a bookstore, but they also have a bunch of restaurants and kind of like a little food court. And there's a stage for poetry and music. And there's this big open area where there's a bunch of tables. And because it's like tables in a food court. And it's also kind of, it's got a bookish atmosphere to it, right? It's not like a mall food court. Uh, Someone could grab a table in there, you know, buy food from one of the places and really camp it out for anywhere between, you know, the the two-hour maximum we talked about earlier, all the way up to what I would consider the normal four-hour length of a standard at-home D&D game. Uh, So if you've got a space like that, and you might have to hunt for it a little bit in your town, because even in the haven that Seattle is, it's a rarity. Uh, finding a spot like that where just having people doing whatever they want to do uh, is allowed. Uh, that That's really the place you want to find. Great answers. I, I don't have anything to add. I've played in a pub once. It was New Year's Day, so we had nowhere else to go to play. Mm. And we just had uh, some a wonderful lady, I'm sure, but God, it ticked us off at the time. Just walk past our table, kind of look at it and go, are you playing Fortnite? <laughs> like what? So far, for, like could have guessed anything, and it would have been closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And off she went to have her merry New Year's Day. I'm sure. Well, <laughs> speaking of excellent uh, listener questions, if you have a question for the podcast, you can email podcast at ghostfiregaming dot com, um, and we will take those questions and ask them to our panelists here. Uh, Sarah Latia, we mentioned it earlier with the D&D Beyond stream, but where can folks find you uh, if they wish to keep up and, and keep up with the D&D community as well? Ooh, baby. Uh, well, if you want to... <laughs> so many off. Oh. So many places. <laughs> uh, well, if you want to keep up with, with our streams, you can just find us pretty much every Tuesday over on D&D Beyond's Twitch channel uh, where we go live at... 2 Pacific time PM every week, which is amazing. Uh, you can, of course, follow D&D Beyond on Twitter, on Instagram. You can follow Dungeons and Dragons in the exact same places. Uh, yep. And you can follow me at Sarah is Coffee, uh, where I do talk about D&D and TTRPGs and also about gay things. It's great. Uh, and you, you know what follow- that timing means? Oh. What is that? Oh, sorry. Mean? You know what that no. timing means? It means you can watch both the Eldritch Lorecast and the D and D Beyond podcast in your week. Put put them <gasps> both your on weekly. your schedule. Yes. Yeah. 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 Your weekly. No crossover. Uh, Amazing. Do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find me uh, on Twitter and all of the other places at Latia Jakis because that's my name. Um, my Twitter is mostly stationary woes and pictures of my dog, with the occasional like TTRPG thing, but mostly it's I'm talking about how I have so many notebooks and. Where am I going to use them? How will I use them? Here's a picture of my dog eating one of my notebooks or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, they do that. 
They do. They do that. My dog ate my monster manual the other week, uh, <gasps> no! as well as my D&D notebook. Yeah. Why do it's, they love paper so? I, it's, I'm, I, mean, I am upset. Before I got him, he's seven months old now, but before I got him, I really truly thought that my dog ate my homework was just like a thing. No, no it's no. it's true. It's true. When when I'm gone for too long, he gets anxious, he gets chewy, and he goes straight for paper, and I don't understand. Yeah. My my wife's a teacher and the dog ate one of her students' homework. Um, so they they have a taste for homework. They they love the stuff. And it's it was true. like I'd never been so so mad as when she chewed up my monster manual, two novels, and my D and D notebook. And yet when I came downstairs and discovered it all, I wanted to be angry and she stood in the middle of it all, looked at me and just tail wagging. Look what I did. I I did good. (laughs) I got them all. Look what I did. (sighs) You're safe. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Speaking of safe things, it is a safe bet that the Eldritch Lawcast will be back next week at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think I got that right. That's the way that time zones work. Uh, 9 a.m. on the Tuesday, Australian Eastern Standard Time. It's uh, Monday on the U.S. times. It's so confusing. Just look at twitch.tv slash ghostfire underscore official. I'm coming over to the U.S. soon, and it's like when I leave and when I'm arriving, I have no idea. Um, Anyway, I'm butchering this outro. Uh, You can also find us on YouTube. Like, subscribe, all that stuff. It'd be great. We're here every week. And we look forward to being back next week. I've been Ben Byrne here with James Hake, Sarah Chaffee, Latia Jaquis, and we will we'll be back next week. Yep. Smooth as butter going out. You did it. You did it. I did it. Proud of you. No proud. Baba da baba da, baba da baba da, baba da baba da. We have to sing the theme song. Or, uh, <laughs>